In a sermon on God's sovereignty and predestination, the 19th century English preacher Charles Spurgeon once said this. Listen to these words of Spurgeon. Do not imagine for an instant that I pretend to be able thoroughly to elucidate the great mysteries of predestination. There are some men who claim to know all about the matter. They twist it round their fingers as easily as if it were an everyday thing. But depend upon it, he who thinks he knows all about this mystery knows but very little. It is but the shallowness of his mind that permits him to see the bottom of his knowledge. He who dives deep finds that there is in the lowest depth to which he can attain a deeper depth still. The fact is that the great questions about man's responsibility, free will, and predestination have been fought over and over and over again and have always been answered in 10,000 different ways. And the result has been that we know just as much about the matter as when we first began. The combatants have thrown dust in each other's eyes and have hindered each other from seeing. And then they have concluded that because they have put out other people's eyes, they could therefore see. Now this morning, we're not going to throw any dust in each other's eyes. We're not going to put anybody's eyes out. But we are going to dig deeper into the mystery of God's sovereignty of predestination, of our human responsibility, and free will. And I understand Spurgeon's feelings. Because standing here this morning, it's a little overwhelming to talk about these subjects. It's been my prayer all week that first and foremost, throughout this sermon, you would understand God's heart. That then you would understand my heart in delivering it and that you each would open up your hearts and your minds to hear what God has to say to you this morning. So if you would, would you now take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 9. And in Romans chapter 9, we're going to look and see what God has to say about his sovereignty as it relates specifically to divine election. And as you know, we've been working through this. Last week, Jim gave us the big picture on what is happening in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. And in these three chapters, we have to understand that these three chapters go together. They're kind of like a mini-series, if you will, in the book of Romans, these three chapters. And last week, Jim gave us the big picture of what's going on in these three chapters. Because to understand God's sovereignty predestination and election and our human responsibility and free will, we have to take all three of these chapters together. We have to understand them as a package. So remember what Jim taught last week. When we look at Romans chapter 9, we see, we come to get a picture of what God's sovereignty looks like. And it's in that chapter where it seems like God is doing all the choosing. Then we come to Romans chapter 10, and when we get to Romans chapter 10, It seems like we're the ones that are doing the choosing. We choose to be saved or we choose not to be saved. Then we come to Romans chapter 11 and it it appears like it's both. But Paul's not crazy. Paul's not crazy. What is happening here is that there are two different perspectives that are both true at the same time. From God's perspective, he is doing the choosing. 
But from our perspective, we are doing the choosing. Both of these things are true at the same time. That means that this is a mystery. And it's often difficult to understand how this mystery works itself out. Now, over these next three weeks, we are going to break down each of the chapters. So this morning, we are going to look at Romans chapter 9, and we're going to focus specifically on God's sovereignty in divine election. This is the piece of the puzzle where God does the choosing. God chooses who is going to be saved, and God chooses who is not going to be saved. This is Romans chapter 9. And parenthetically, I'm going to say thank you to Jim for giving me Romans chapter 9. Or maybe we should say it's God's choice. I don't know whose choice it is. All I know is I'm here doing Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. God's sovereignty in divine election. So please follow along as I read Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 10. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Ouch. What did he just say? These are difficult words. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This seems so harsh. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Both of these boys are sons of Isaac. Now remember, Isaac is the son of Abraham. And Isaac and Rebekah, they have two sons. They're two boys. They're twins. Esau was minutes older than Jacob, yet God chooses Jacob over Esau. And he chooses before they were even born, and he declares that the older will serve the younger. Now, let's be quite clear. These words, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, these are not Paul's words. These are God's words. This is a quote that's taken from the first chapter of Malachi in which God promised to bless Jacob and Israel and he promised to destroy Esau and Edom. These are the words of God himself and they're difficult words and sometimes when I read this, I wish these words were not here. But they're here. And these words remind you and they remind me that in the end, some will be saved and receive God's blessing and others will be lost and face God's wrath. Now it's tempting. It's tempting when we look at these, when we read these verbs, these words, 
to think that God chooses Jacob because God knows the choices that Jacob is going to make. We think in our minds that maybe it's God working ahead and foreseeing what is going to happen. But that doesn't work out because both of these people, both Jacob and Esau, have some pretty significant flaws. And look, Paul makes it a point to say that Jacob was chosen not because of anything he had done or because of anything that he was going to do. Look what he says. He says he was chosen solely so God's purpose in election might stand. This is the concept of God's sovereignty. His sovereignty means that he is free to make whatever choice he wants to make. God is God. He is free to choose what he wants to choose to do. He is free not to do what he doesn't want to do. There is no external force or person that calls and asks God or demands of God to do anything. God makes his choices. This is God's sovereignty, and nothing outside of God can demand that he make a choice that he doesn't choose to make. The writer of Psalms in Psalm 115, verse 3, says it this way. He says that our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. God is God. And God gets to make the choices that he chooses to make. He is free to do whatever he wishes to do. God is God. And this applies to Jacob and Esau because God chose Jacob and he did not choose Esau. And for us here this morning, it means that God chooses some for salvation and he doesn't choose others. Now, I know that this is difficult. I know that this appears harsh and can be very difficult for you and for me to accept. They're difficult verses, and honestly, many of us don't like this at all. If truth be told, many of us are not comfortable with the idea of God's sovereignty. We try to explain it away. We try to say, well, well, God knew what Jacob was going to do before he did it. God knew the choices that Jacob was going to make before he made the choices. He really didn't choose. He just knew what was going to happen. But that's not what it says. And at some level, this makes each one of us feel uncomfortable. Because you and I, we like the idea or the concept of fairness. We like things to be fair. We like things to be equal. We like to think that everyone has an equal opportunity. We often object to this concept of God's sovereignty. Well, Paul knows that the objections are coming. He knows what he's written is difficult. He knows what he has written can be viewed as harsh. So when he writes down these verses, he knows that the objections are coming. And when we read of God's sovereignty, 
or when the issue of divine election is taught, there are always two objections that are presented. The first objection that is mentioned when divine election is taught is, this isn't fair. This isn't right. It's not fair that God picks some and doesn't pick others. That's the first objection. The second objection is, well, doesn't this just mean that we're all puppets? If all of the decisions have been made already, why do I have to, why am I going to be held responsible for any of the choices that I make? Objection number one, it's not fair. Objection number two, aren't we all just puppets then? Well, Paul anticipates these two objections and he answers them. But I also want you to notice before we get specifically into the objections that the objections themselves, listen to this, the objections themselves are proof that Paul is talking about divine election here. Because no one would have a problem if this text said Jacob made a choice and Esau made a different choice. Jacob made a good choice, Esau made a bad choice. No one would then have a problem. The objection comes because God made the choice before Jacob or Esau had a chance to make the choice, and that is proof that God here is talking about his divine election. God sovereignly acting independent of man. So let's look at the first objection and the answer to the first objection. Beginning in verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Paul raises the first objection, is God unjust? And in the strongest possible terms, he says not at all. By no means. God is not unjust. God is not unfair. Now look again at what he writes in verses 15 and 16. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. That's curious. Notice in verses 15 and 16, he says nothing about justice. He says nothing about fairness. Now that's strange because the question is about God's justice. Is God being unjust? And in Paul's answer, he says nothing about justice. He only speaks about mercy. Now let's understand. Let's make sure we all understand. Justice is about getting what you deserve. Justice is about fairness. It's about getting what you deserve. Mercy, on the other hand, is not getting what you deserve. Maybe better said, being spared from what you deserve. Mercy is a gift, 
by definition. It's not owed to anyone. Mercy is a gift, and it cannot be demanded from another. It has to be given by one to another. So now the question. Let me ask you a question. Has Paul's answer, has his response answered the question? The question was about justice. His answer is all about mercy. Is his response an adequate answer to the question? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It is is an adequate response. It is actually the perfect response because Paul, by referring strictly to mercy in a question about justice, teaches us something extremely important about salvation. This is one of the main points of Romans chapter 9. Salvation is not about justice. Salvation is about mercy. Salvation is not about fairness. Salvation is about mercy. Salvation is not about what you deserve. Salvation is about mercy. If salvation were about what we deserve, if salvation were about what you think you deserve, that's simple. The answer is hell. Right. Yes, I did just say that. See, justice would demand, justice would demand that you and I, every one of us, deserve hell. And there is not one of us here this morning that likes to hear that. There is not one of us here this morning that says, oh yeah, that's a good amen. We don't like to hear that because the reason is, is down deep inside, we think that we are good. We're not so guilty. We're not so unworthy. We're actually good. And we think for the most part, the people around us are really good. That's why when people read these verses, they get so angry because they think they're good. They think God owes them something. And sometimes we think we're good and we think God owes us something. When we read these verses and we get upset and we get angry when other people read these verses and they get upset and they get up angry, it means that people think God owes them something. It means they think that God owes them salvation. And this is a big problem. In the famous words of Anselm, the 11th century theologian, it is because you have failed to consider the great weight of sin. Think about what Anselm said. You have failed to consider the great weight of sin. You see, we are not good. We are guilty, and we are unworthy. And our sin has separated us from God, and God does not have to give us anything. We do not deserve anything from God. We do not deserve salvation. Look at what Paul said earlier in Romans chapter three. 
Look at what he writes in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. There is no one righteous. Listen to this. Look at these words. This is pretty black and white. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. This is what allows Paul to write in Romans 3, verse 23. Look at what he writes there. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, our sin separates us from God. In our sin is a weighty matter because God is a holy God. In that sin of ours, the sin, your sin, my sin, separates us each from God. Now, I'd like us to do an exercise. I'd like each one of you to shut your eyes. So please shut your eyes. Please shut your eyes. And for a moment, just a moment, I'd like you to think how you have fallen short of God's standard. Think about your sin. Each one of us here this morning has a long list of sins. Idolatry, murder, adultery, greed, envy, sexual immorality, lust, gluttony, gossip, slander. Please keep your eyes shut. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Our sin means separation from God. Apart from God, not one of us is running toward the gates of heaven. In fact, apart from God, we are running as fast as we can away from the gates of heaven. Not one of us deserve anything from God. Now open your eyes. Now in no way was that a fun exercise. It wasn't encouraging. It's not uplifting to spend time focusing on our sin, to spend time focusing on the sins of our past. But understanding your sin and who you were or are in that sin, understanding who others are in their sin is essential to understanding this doctrine. It's essential to understanding God's divine election. Salvation isn't about justice. And this is really, really good news. This is the part that is encouraging, that is uplifting, that is a good exercise to think about. Salvation is not about justice. Salvation is about mercy. Because if salvation was about justice, neither Jacob nor Esau, neither Pharaoh, nor Moses, none of them would have been selected. Not even Moses. If salvation was about justice, Moses would not even have been selected by God. 
And if salvation is about justice, not one of you would have been selected by God, nor would I have been selected by God. But salvation isn't about justice. Salvation is about mercy. God sparing each one of us from what we deserve. So often we come to these verses and we look at these verses and we think to ourselves, God is harsh, God is mean, God is judgmental. Nothing could be further from the truth. God is merciful. God is a God of mercy. Is God unjust? Not at all. God is merciful. Now to the second objection. Verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? Paul responds, but who are you? a human being, to talk back to God. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? The objection here is how can God blame us if he is sovereign and if he is in control? Now the question asked in verse 14 And the question asked here in verse 19 seemed to be completely different types of questions. The first question raised in verse 14 seems to be asked humbly out of a a genuine concern. But here in verse 19, the question question seems arrogant. It seems defiant towards God. We could kind of paraphrase it like, God, what's your deal? God, what's your problem? Why does he blame me for the things that he's made me do? Well, Paul here refuses to answer the question immediately. He is going to answer the question in the next two chapters of Romans, but here he refuses to answer immediately. But what he does is he vigorously attacks the attitude and the premise of the question. Paul is saying, do you realize what you're doing? Do you realize who you are talking to? Be very careful when you talk to the sovereign creator of the world in this matter and in this fashion. You may even be out of bounds in asking this question. You're completely out of line. Who do you think you are? This makes me think of Job. In the Old Testament, there's this book of Job, and it tells the story of this man named Job. And Job lives a difficult life. He lives, he lives a life of trial. And in this life of trial, he experiences many devastating things. He loses all of his farm animals, which means he's lose his, lost his livelihood. He even loses all of his children in a storm. And many difficult things happen to Job. And at the end of the book of Job, when Job is questioning God's wisdom and God's judgment... God answers Job out of a storm. And God answers Job with some questions. And he says to Job, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man and I will question you. Where were you when I placed the heavens? 
Where were you when I formed the earth? Where were you when I created the universe? What part did you play in all of these miraculous workings? And Job places his hand over his mouth and remains silent. And here in Romans chapter 9, Paul is placing his hand over the mouth of the objector and saying, be very careful. Be very careful. Remember who is the potter and remember who is the clay. Be careful because God is sovereign. Well, Paul has more to say to us. He wants to make sure we get the point. I've got the point. Verse 22. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory? Paul wants us to understand. He wants us to make sure that we understand that the doctrine of election applies to us all. These individuals in these verses, Jacob and Esau, Moses and Pharaoh, they are not exceptions. They are examples. They illustrate a truth that extends and applies to every human being that applies to each one of us. Ultimately, there are only two categories. There are only two destinies. By divine choice, a man is either an object of wrath or an object of mercy. Now notice that Paul's statements in these two verses are posed as questions. They're not statements per se, they're questions. And these questions seek to put the questioner in his or her place actually to remind the questioner of what their place is. God's the potter, we're the clay. The clay does not make the decisions, the potter makes the decisions. But look for whose benefit the potter makes his decisions. The benefit is for the objects of mercy. In verse 22, we see that God is showing patience to the objects of wrath. And verse 23 tells us why. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory? God is showing his patience to the objects of wrath for the benefit of the objects of mercy. Now, God's ultimate purpose is not just to to display his glory. That is overwhelming enough. That is difficult enough to understand. But God's purpose is to reveal his glory to you as an object of mercy and allow the objects of mercy to experience his glory. 
Now, if you are here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian, if you are a child of God, that means that you are an object of God's mercy. That means that he is revealing, displaying his glory to you, and he will do that in ever-increasing measure because you are an object of mercy. God has called you out of darkness into light. God has called you out of blindness into sight. God has called you out of death into life. God has called you out of your sin. You are an object of mercy. Do you deserve it? No. Did you earn it? No. Do I deserve it? No. Did I earn it? No. But I am an object of mercy. You are an object of mercy because God in his divine election has chosen you. God is merciful. Is he unjust? Is he unfair? No, because he is merciful. God is sovereign and God is in control and in his sovereignty he has displayed his mercy by choosing you and choosing me and calling us objects of mercy. Now I hope by now you understand that the key word in Romans chapter 9 is mercy. The key word in Romans chapter 9 is mercy. Often when we come to these verses, when we come to this chapter, we read and we see a God who is harsh, mean, and judgmental. That there could be nothing that is further from the truth. God is mercy. And he has demonstrated that mercy by calling us to salvation by calling us objects of mercy. In fact, when God met with Moses on Mount Sinai, and when Moses asked to see God's face, when he asked to see God's glory, God revealed his name to Moses. And not only did he reveal his name, he defined his character. And these are the words that God used to define his character from Exodus 34. This is what he said about himself. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. This is how God describes himself. The Lord the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That is how God defines himself. If you are here this morning and you don't know this God of compassion, of love, and of mercy? If you're not sure that you're an object of mercy, if you're not sure that you're one of God's elect, 
I want to leave you with one more thing about mercy. This past week, as I was looking at the word mercy throughout the New Testament, I was struck by something quite amazing. Not one time was anyone who asked Jesus for mercy rejected. No one was ever rejected when they asked Jesus for mercy. No one went to Jesus and said, Jesus, may I please have mercy? And Jesus responded, oh, I'd like to grant you mercy, but you're not one of the elect, so just go away. No. Every person, every individual, everyone who went to Jesus and asked for mercy received mercy. Will you ask Jesus for mercy? Will you ask Jesus for mercy? Will you ask Jesus for mercy? mercy?